You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Well, uh, as he said, my name is Brandon. Uh, I do get to serve the Redeemer Network. And the last time that I preached here, I was asked to preach on shame. And so thank you for not doing that one to me again. Um, The letter of Corinthians, it was written to uh, a church in a city called Corinth. Uh, The city was this uh, melting pot of cultures and religions. Uh, And the church that had been born there at this point had grown pretty dysfunctional, pretty divided. Uh, And Paul writes this letter uh, saying, listen, you're like a house in need of significant renovation. Basically, You've had a freeze, a few pipes have busted, and water has made its way throughout, and you're going to need to strip it down to the studs and rebuild this sucker. That's effectively what's going on here in this letter. And last week, uh, you looked at Paul's, uh, who's the author of the letter, uh, probably most famous writing on the resurrection. It, It concludes with this, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And then today we hit chapter 16. Uh, and, and this is the last chapter of the letter. And as Jordan said, it, it's often thought of or treated as just sort of some add-on, some concluding remarks, some, some practical instruction. Um, but I think it's wrong. Gordon Fee, uh, who's a commentator that I respect just, just a ton, uh, he says this about chapter 16. And I know you're not supposed to read commentaries in the introduction. That is not good preaching. Roll with me anyway. He says this, with the triumphant words of chapter 15, Paul has brought the essential matters to their conclusion. And I think he is just dead wrong. I think he's dead wrong. Um, he, He is... What Fee is trying to say here is that there's been the essential stuff, and now we're wrapping it up with some non-essential matters, and I think he's dead wrong. There are absolutely matters of first importance and second importance and third importance. Paul is clear about that. It's how we open chapter 15. But this text is about how the church lives together, how the church functions together. And if you've read Paul's letters... This sits at the heart of almost every letter that he writes. It is absolutely not of first importance, i.e. not the gospel, but it is simply not a non-essential in the mind and heart of Paul for how the church is to live. Let me try to illustrate it like this. Imagine with me, um, you were elected president of a divided country. Okay, no? All right, never mind. I thought that would be funny, okay? (laughs) But imagine with me, you're elected president of a divided, divided country, and it's time for your inauguration speech. Um, you are not going to talk about non-essentials in that speech. You are not going to lay out your case for the future of the country and then talk about where you bought your TV, what kind of couch you have, who the artist is that painted that beautiful painting hanging in the hallway. You will, in that speech, talk about matters of second importance but you will not talk about non-essentials. Same thing is true for 1 Corinthians. Paul, in this text, is talking about gospel partnership, and it's not an add-on to chapter 15. It's the overflow of the resurrection. And we learn three things in this text about gospel partnership. One, it's costly. Two, it's messy. Three, it's purposeful. So it's costly, it's messy, and it has a purpose. 
Let's start with costly. Look at verse 1 with me. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and store it up, as he may so that there will be collecting when I come. All right, so here, here is sort of the foundational instruction of chapter 16. It's, it starts like this. Um, I want you to collect some money. I want all of you to come together. When you meet together on Sundays, first day of the week, each one of you, not some of you, I want you to set some money aside. We've got Christians in, um, um, in Jerusalem who are Jewish Christians. I get that you're a set of Gentile Christians, but they're Jewish Christians, and they're in need. And so I want you to come together, put some money aside, and I want you to store up to meet their need. And I want you to see something. He says, as I directed. Don't skip over those words. As I directed. This is not Paul saying, hey, listen, I want you to pray about something. I would love for you to consider something. This is Paul saying, we've got brothers and sisters in need. I want you to set money aside to take care of them. This is not a non-negotiable. No, wait a minute. That's the wrong way. This is not a negotiable. This is a non-negotiable. You are to set money aside to care for your brothers and your sisters in need, and you do it as he may prosper, which is saying, um, give according to what you have. So based on what you have, give according to that to meet this need. Paul is saying we have Jewish Christians in need. Set money aside based on how much you have. Two things about this. One, it was radically countercultural. Two, it was a privilege. Countercultural at first. Um, today, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's common to, I mean, we live in a land in the world of TV and internet, and we're able to see what's happening on the other side of the world, all around us, in our city, in our state, in our country. And if you want to um, provide for somebody, meet the need, like you're able to know what's going on in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe. And if you wanted to give money to help people, um, civilians being affected by war, there's a mechanism for that. You're aware of it, and there's a means to do that. It's not uncommon for justice initiatives across cultural lines and us to be able to resource and serve our neighbors. Common today, not common back then. You simply did not do it in their day. Um, Jews cared for Jews. Non-Jews, Gentiles, cared for non-Jews. Your safety net was your family and then the ethnic community that you were a part of. It was not Jews in Jerusalem, Corinthian, I mean Gentiles in Corinth. This was not part of your safety net. This was radically countercultural. And Paul is saying, here's what the gospel does. Here's what it does. It breaks down every line that divides. It, it takes the ethnic and the economic lines. And the gospel just punches a hole right through them. It was radically countercultural. And that kind of life, that kind of life where, we, where we're not divided over ethnicity, economics, politics, that is a radically countercultural life today. The gospel punches holes through walls that divide. And Paul is saying, Here, here's one way you demonstrate that. You Gentiles in Corinth, we're going to take care of our Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Second thing, it's a privilege. 
Um, I'm going to cite Gordon Fee again since I corrected him once. He is exponentially smarter than I am, so I should not have said corrected him. Um, he says elsewhere where Paul speaks of this collection, he, he speaks of it as a fellowship, service, grace, blessing, divine service for Paul. This is Gordon. For Paul, this was an active response to the grace of God. Did you hear those words? This was an active response to the grace of God. You've been recipients of the grace of God, and now you respond this way. It is a grace and a privilege to get to participate in the reconciling work of God in the world. Yeah, it's a sacrifice. That's costly. And it is a privilege. It is a privilege to get to take what you've been given and participate in God's redeeming work in the world. It is an absolute grace to get to do this for each and every one of us. I think Paul would say it like this. I think he would say that grace makes you less greedy and more generous. So why then? Like I, 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 don't, I don't know that anybody would disagree with me, or Paul, on that statement. I think if we're sitting having coffee, um, and, and we just said, hey, listen, I, I think this is what the gospel is. When the gospel penetrates your life, shapes you, changes you, impacts you, it, it makes you less greedy and more generous. I don't think anybody in this room is going to disagree with that. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think so. So why then, why then is it so hard to separate with our money? Why is it so hard to open our hands around our finances and our resources? Why is this so hard? I think um, in this room, there's probably a nuanced answer for everybody. I think there's, there's probably a lot of different reasons why that's a challenge, but here's one. Here's one I think is probably a common thread in most of our lives. It certainly um, comes from my life. I, I think one reason is that our bank accounts feel just a little too safe. We just feel a little bit too much safety and security. That our functional security blanket is what we have in our bank accounts. That we look at it and go, man, if I just had a little bit more. Like I'm not quite there. I'm, I, I just, I'm a little worried about the future. I just, if I just had a little bit more. If I just had a little more, I'd be there. And listen, if you have $10 or $10 million, the scale is different. The heart is not. If I just had a touch more, man, if I pull up Bank of America, looked at my accounts, and if I just didn't feel like I'm on the edge, I would know I'm going to be okay. And the solution to this, it's chapter 15. It's the resurrection. It's looking at the resurrection, opening up chapter 15, looking at what it says about Jesus walking out of the grave and the reality of the future resurrection to come, looking at it face to face and asking if you believe it. Asking if you believe that in the resurrection you have something money can't buy and bankruptcy can't cost you. Letting that sink deep into you. This is the solution. The question simply is, do you believe it? 
Gospel partnership will and should cost you financially, but it is absolutely a privilege. Point two, gospel partnership is messy. Look at verse five. Um, Look at verse five. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps, perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that, may help me, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want uh, to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Okay. So Paul here, it, it, he's simply saying this, I, I want to come and see you. So I'm not with you. I want to be with you. I want to come. In fact, I would love to be able to spend the winter with you. Uh, I want to come and I want to spend some time with you. Why? So that you can help me on my journey. Um, but the word so that you can help me, it's, it's actually a technical term. It, it, it really means to, to provide food, money, people to travel with you. Um, and so they, they would show up and he's saying, listen, I want, you to, uh, I want you to send some food, some money. But I also want people to travel, to go with me, companions. Uh, traveling was dangerous in that day. And so you would send people to make sure that they got there safe. This was one form of Christian hospitality uh, in the ancient world. Paul is saying, I want to come. I want to come and I want to see you. I want to come and see you so that you can help me go and take the gospel to new places. To see it break into new lives and new cities and new towns and new cultures. And now I told you that it was messy. Gospel partnership is messy. But on the surface here, there's actually nothing really messy about what we just read. So here's what happens after 1 Corinthians 16. Paul sends Timothy. Timothy goes to Corinth. He finds that the church is in absolute turmoil. There's, as we spoke of, division, chaos. The things got ripped down to the studs and and rebuilt. Paul hears about it. He goes straight to Corinth, and that trip did not go well. It did not go well. There was an active and open and outright rebellion against Paul. Complete rebellion. There was a full-on breakdown of relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church. It got ugly. um, It got nasty. And by the time we hit 2 Corinthians, here's what we have. Chapter 2. This is 2 Corinthians. So this is 1 Corinthians 16. Fast forward. Corinthians. Made up my mind not another painful visit to you. I want, to, I want to come to you, Corinth. I want to come. I want to come. In fact, I, want to, I, just, I don't want to just see you in passing. I want to come. I want to be there. And I want to spend the winter with you so that you can then participate, partner with me in this advancing of the gospel, the work of the God. I want you to send me on my way. Corinth, I want to come. I want to see you. I want to spend my entire winter with you. I can't wait to see you. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you, this was a letter in between 
1 and 2 Corinthians. For I wrote to you that letter out of much affliction and anguish of heart and many tears. Corinth, I wanted to come and see you. I wanted to come and I wanted to spend the winter with you. And when I heard what was happening, I just couldn't believe it. And so, yeah, I wrote this stern letter to correct you. And now this is where we are, where I'm writing you a letter with anguish in my heart, written with many tears. Listen, gospel partnership is messy because it involves people. People. I can't help but picture Paul writing 1 Corinthians 15 with tears in his eyes, but tears of joy. I mean, I can't, I, in my mind, Paul is sitting under a tree. He's scribing it out, and he's writing, and he's, he's writing, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's got tears of joy in his eyes, seeing the Corinthian church receive this letter, look at this letter, and live in light of the hope of the resurrection. And now he's writing with tears of anguish in his heart. And we'll come back to 2 Corinthians in just a second. But let me give you another example of why it's messy. This is a touch out of order. Forgive me. But, but let, me, let me give another example. Uh, back in chapter 16, down in verse 10, he says, When, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease and, and let, uh, let no one despise him. When Timothy gets there, um, put him at ease and let no one despise him. Why would he need to write that? He writes it because they didn't want Timothy. They wanted Apollos. Remember back in chapter 1, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Nobody says, I follow Timothy. I don't want Timothy. We don't want him. Send us Apollos. It would be effectively like you standing up going, hey, Brandon, roll out of here. We want Jordan back. Understandable. (laughs) True story. At a church I worked at, we had a wonderful preacher. This is 10, 15 years ago. Exceptionally gifted preacher. And when one of us would come up to preach and it wasn't, people would walk out. There's a, I have a great story about that. It's not sermon content, but it's a wonderful story. Ask me after and I'm happy to tell you. Gospel partnership is messy. It was messy then, it's messy now. And it's messy because it involves you and it involves me. And just like Paul, in a world of messy relationships, people get hurt. People get hurt. And when we do, we don't re-engage because we don't want to relive the pain we just went through. So we're engaged. We get hurt, we get wounded, we unengage. And then we say, I'm not re-engaging. I've been down that road one time. I'm not doing it twice. Fool me once. Fool me twice. Not getting me again. Hurt leads to fear. And this is what fear sounds like. These are lines that we say when wounds are speaking for us. We say things like this. I'm not making new friends. I'm not ready for new friends. I'm not opening that door. Not getting burned again. We say things like, I'm not ready to talk about anything under the surface. Listen, I I need to live up here right now. I can't get down here. I'm not making new friends, and I'm definitely not letting anybody into what's actually going on in my life. I'm too afraid. That's a wound speaking. And it might be a legitimate wound that is not your fault. And it's still a wound speaking. 
And what happens is the church becomes a safe cocoon rather than a community on mission. It might sound like this. There's a few more examples. Um, I, I don't want to multiply gospel communities because this one is comfortable and safe. I don't want to open that door to new relationships. This group has become a safe harbor for me, and I simply cannot risk losing that kind of safety. It might sound like I don't want to go with a church plant because I've got friends here. Or it might sound like, as a church, I I don't want to send leaders. I don't want to send leaders to a new church plant because we need them here. I have said all three of those. And there is, I want to say this, I want to be clear about this. There is nothing inherently wrong with saying, I don't want to multiply gospel communities, I don't want to go with a plant, or I don't want to send leaders. There's nothing inherently wrong with all of those, but when your motives are driven by hurt and fear, you are not living in light of the resurrection. Even if your hurt and the resulting fear is understandable, legitimate, and not your fault. A life motivated, driven by hurt and fear is not a life lived in light of the resurrection. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, and he wrote it with tears. Tears of anguish. But there was a part of verse 4 I didn't read. This is how he finishes verse 4. I wrote you with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. I wrote you with tears of anguish to let you know the love that I have with you. When I I put 1 Corinthians 15, 16, and now 2 Corinthians together, here's here's how I hear Paul in that. I hear Paul saying the resurrection means, means the risk is worth it. It means the mess is worth it. Gospel partnership is messy, and you are going to get hurt inside the local church, and then more broadly in Redeemer Network. Like, we are going to get hurt. You are going to get hurt. That is a life lived in the messiness of the real and broken world that we are in. But if the resurrection is true, the hurt has a purpose. Point three, the purpose of gospel partnership. Um, Look at verse 8. 16, verse 8 and 9. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Adversaries means there's many people opposed. So he's saying, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. What, what is Pentecost? Um, so Pentecost was the Greek name for one of the Old Testament festivals that happened 50 days after uh, Passover in Acts 2. Uh, it's the day the Spirit came down and the New Testament church is born, which happened 50 days after the resurrection. So Pentecost came and became part of the early church calendar. So early on in the life of the church, they 
reoriented their year around a calendar. Side note, every church follows the church calendar. There is one today. Um, you follow it. Everybody follows it. The question is to what degree. For example, if you, if you uh, have an Easter Sunday, if you celebrate that, church calendar. If you do Good Friday, church calendar. Christmas Eve, church calendar. The question isn't do you follow it. It's to what degree do you follow it. And early on, they created a church calendar, which meant, here's what's happening. The gospel's not just reorienting lives. It's shaping their collective and communal rhythms. Here's the calendar that created around the order of the gospel and where Pentecost fits into it. You ready? Advent, Christ is coming. Christmas, Christ is born. Epiphany, Christ is here. Lent, Christ is on his way to the cross. Good Friday, Christ died for you. Easter, he didn't stay dead. Pentecost, the church is born and she has a purpose. She has a purpose. And her purpose is to take the gospel, take this message and see it. Break into the most broken parts of the world. Break into broken lives like yours and mine and reorient them, reshape them, rebuild them, renovate them in light of the gospel, which always comes with opposition. The backstory to this adversaries, it's Acts 19. Paul's in Ephesus. He's there reasoning, persuading, preaching Jesus, talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that is and is to come. He's doing it in synagogues and in cultural centers. All who live there, Jews, Greeks, they hear the gospel. Miracles are happening. Sick are getting healed. Uh, healed. And there, there was fear that the, the temple with the goddess Artemis, she is not going to be worshipped anymore, which would have wrecked their culture and their economy. And eventually a riot breaks out in opposition to Paul and the message of the gospel going through. And in the middle of chapter 19, there's this little verse that says this. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. In the middle of the chaos of Acts 19, in the middle of this riot, in this, the message of the gospel continued to prevail mightily. And it still does today. There is a message making its way from city to city, town to town, country to country, places like Round Rock and in North Korea. And it's this, that God looked down at the mess of our world. He looked down at the mess of your life. And he entered in. He didn't look away. He didn't run away. He's not afraid of your brokenness. And if you look at your life and feel like everyone has abandoned you, everybody has looked at you and walked away, run the other direction, not Jesus. Not Jesus. He came in, he walked right up, and he got close. He got so close to the mess of your life that it affected him to the point that it killed him. And when he climbed on that cross... It was costly, it was messy, and it had a purpose. On that cross, it cost the father his son, it cost the son his life. And it was messy. I mean, you want to talk about anguish? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has experienced the depth of any amount of anguish you or Paul ever will. And when he cried it out, you know what he got? He got silence. He got silence so you never would. 
He got silent so you could hear the Father's voice saying, hey, hey, I'm aware. I know all about what's going on. I know how messy your life really is. I know what no one else knows about you, the thing that you are desperately afraid that anybody would crack open your heart and see. I see it. And my son died for it. And three days later, he walked out of a grave. Blood started to course through his veins again. And then he gathered disciples together and he said this, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. To all nations, every man, every woman, every child, east, west, north, and south, white, black, Hispanic, Indian, Pakistani, all nations that the Forgiveness of sins that you can't actually turn away. Like you can have a new life. You can have a different life. Your life doesn't have to be the way that it is. This needs to be known by everyone, everywhere. Everyone, everywhere. And as long as there are more people whose mess Jesus wants to enter into, gospel partnership will matter. Partnering together, coming together, seeing the purposes of God extend out into the world. It matters. Redeemer Round Rock, for you right here in Northern Austin, Round Rock. I don't know if Northern Austin's offensive to anybody or not. (laughs) But here in Round Rock, with your neighbors and your family and your friends and your classmates and your coworkers, coming together, willing to make the sacrifices necessary for gospel partnership, knowing that it is costly. It costs you financially. It costs you relationally. It's messy. It means getting hurt sometimes. And not losing sight of the purposes of the gospel in your church, in your community. It is an absolute privilege to get to be invited by God to be participating in the redemptive work of God right here, right now, in your city. In your church, as a church. And listen, that means that you continue to give generously according to what you have. It means you continue multiplying new gospel communities and you continue planting churches. As we're gathering right now in this moment, there are people in Taylor, there are people in Temple, there are people in Liberty Hill who need your sacrifice. Who need the sacrifice of Redeemer Georgetown and Redeemer Hutto. Because they need to know that Christ has come. And Christ isn't afraid of their mess either and that Christ died for them, and that Christ walked out of the grave to say, come on. And as Redeemer Network, it's our privilege to get to stay focused on planting new churches, churches that are missionally leaning, engaging with their neighbors, knowing that 
the cost is worth it. It absolutely costs. Our churches give according to what they have. And they give generously. And it's messy. There's going to be conflict here and there. We can't lose sight of the purpose. And I want to say this to Redeemer Round Rock to you. You're doing it. Like you're doing it. I don't know how you see it on the inside, but I can tell you how I see it. You're doing it. Just keep going. Just keep, go- keep doing what you're doing. You are doing it. And because the gospel is still advancing, co- gospel partnership is still worth the price. It is a costly privilege to be invited by God to participate in his redeeming, reconciling, renovating work. Because the gospel is still spreading from person to person, city to city, town to town, and country to country. Gospel partnership is worth the price. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the chance to open up 1 Corinthians 16. Let's open up 1 Corinthians 16 and to see, I mean, just see the real life mess of gospel partnership, to see the sacrifice that's required, but to see the tender purpose. And Jesus came to do for a countless multitude of others what he's done for us. Enter into our mess. To redeem, to reconcile, to renovate the broken home of our lives. Help us embrace it and be a people willing to continue to pay the price knowing knowing that it's a privilege. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.